0: Wonderful prayer to offer up the very thing that we need and the very thing that God has promised that he would give to us this morning as we turn our attention to his word. Again, good morning. If you are visiting here this morning, invited by a friend or a neighbor or coworker, we're glad that you've chosen to worship with us. You're most welcome here. My name is Brett. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If we haven't yet had a chance to meet, please introduce yourself on the way out the back door there. I would love to get to know you, at least to get to know your name and how we might be praying for you or serve you as you're joining with us here this morning. Let's go ahead and turn in our copy of God's Word this morning as we consider the Gospel of Mark. Let's turn to Mark chapter 13. Mark 13. We've got a portion of text in front of us to consider. We're going to attempt to work our way through the entire chapter of 13, all 37 verses, as it is one discourse and my attempt and that it is most helpfully understood if we consider it in its entirety. So Mark chapter 13, I'll read a portion of the front half of the text, but we'll work our way through it as we read, as we consider God's word. But let's begin in hearing verse 1. And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will be led ast- and lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be first proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and to deliver you over, Our Lord, we look to you this morning in the very same tone and the very same desire that we've just sung as your people, that you would speak. Lord, we come believing that you are the God who has spoken, that you are the God who's spoken into the darkness and said, let there be light, that you are the God who's spoken and out of nothing and from nothing, all things came to be. Lord, we believe and we know that you are the same God who speaks, forming your church, causing her to exist where it did not exist, that you speak and faith is brought forth, that you speak forth and joy and hope and rest and contentment are born where they were not born before. Lord, we know that this is only because of the power of your word to create, to establish, to nourish, To sustain. It's only because of the ministry of your spirit. That these things are fruitful and effective. And they bring forth the very purposes. For which you send them forth. So father by word and by spirit. Would you shape us. Would you form us. Would you cause your church to exist. And to be strengthened this morning. We ask that you would accomplish this lord. By the authority of your word. By the goodness of your word. Lord bring hope where there is great need for that this morning. Lord, where there's great need for warning, to be awoken from slumber, Lord, would you bring that by your word and by your spirit. Lord, we need you to speak to us this morning, and we are confident that you will do so because you've promised that you would. So help us to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us the hearts of meekness that are able to receive the implanted word that it might Grow up and bear the fruit that you desire, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I wonder how many times you have driven past this sort of scene. A person staked out at a busy intersection, the hand drawn sign, hoisted up on a stick, a few simple words saying, The end is near, judgment is coming. It's the sort of scene you're probably familiar with. It's the sort of scene that's trivialized, even becomes a caricature within pop culture as someone who's out of touch, someone who's absolutely eccentric, someone who's perhaps an extremist. And so much so that even as we see this or these sites become common and we drive by these encounters, they can even leave us apathetic, where they even become normative To our daily life in which it's common to see such things causing us to just shrug our shoulders and to carry on with our day. That sort of scene and that sort of reaction is even more problematic if you grew up in a particular church culture where things like prophecy updates were quite common. And when the Bible was approached more like a cipher giving you insight into certain codes so that you could crack certain events and discern The treasure of what's coming in future events. And because of this, any talk of last days or any talk of future judgment may to you sound like the boy who cried wolf. It may become just kind of the white noise in the background to the sort of things that you put off to the side and say, I don't really have much time for that now or perhaps it's just sidelined to a particular aspect of Christianity that's kind of the weird cousin that visits every now and then, but you really don't like to bring into the living room. Be that as it may, these characterizations or even these misrepresentations of Scripture's teaching do not erase the inescapable emphasis of Scripture, which is, judgment is coming. And Mark 13 stands among these various portions of Scripture that serve as the smelling salts to awaken us to this reality that judgment is coming. And for several reasons, this portion of Scripture here in Mark 13, which is known as the Olivet Discourse, is one of the most difficult and sometimes disputed passages in all of the New Testament. Go home, pick up or look up a commentary, turn to this section, and I guarantee you you will find some version of the quali- this qualifying statement within the introduction. Few chapters in the Bible have called forth more disagreement among interpreters than these verses. The history and the interpretation of this passage is extremely complex. <laughs> It is the black diamond of the hill that you're about to descend as you begin to read Mark 13 or Matthew 24 or Luke 21 and say, what do we do with this? No doubt, I guarantee you, many a preacher has prayed that Christ would just return before they get to chapter 13 or chapter 24 or chapter 21 and just settle the whole matter. Let the reader understand. Given these difficulties... There's two contextual guardrails that we just need to lay out before us that will help us navigate Jesus' teaching here in Mark 13 and hopefully help us arrive to the other side. The two contextual guardrails that we need to just have as kind of the spotlights in the background that are illuminating everything that we're going to read this morning are this one, the context of the temple. Do not read Mark 13 attached from this thematic emphasis of the temple in Jerusalem that Mark has been emphasizing all the way back to chapter 11. In chapter 11, verse 1, Jesus rides into Jerusalem and he goes straight to the temple. In verse 15, Jesus cleanses the temple, rebukes the religious leaders for their corruption because they've turned his house into a den of thieves. In chapter 11, verse 20, a fig tree is cursed and withered up from the roots, symbolizing the judgment that is going to come upon this temple. In chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus continues his teaching where? At the temple. Everything that he's saying and making reference to observations of all are happening within the context of this temple. That's one guardrail. The second guardrail is the historical context in which Mark was written. Mark writes his gospel around 65 AD. Contextually, what's happening in world events there is rather significant given what Jesus is going to teach here in Mark 13, rather significant concerning the questions that these disciples asked. If this was written as we believe it to be around 65 A.D., that would mean that Nero is Caesar and the persecution of Jews and Christians is intensifying. In 64 A.D., the great fire in Rome broke out, which you may know many Jews, and specifically Christians, were blamed for. In 67 AD, the Jewish-Roman wars begin. Jerusalem is under siege. In 70 AD, Rome burns Jerusalem and destroys the temple. The springboard for this entire teaching in chapter 13 is wrapped up in the observation of one of the disciples and the response of Christ to that observation. Everything that Jesus says has to do with this interaction that happens in the first five verses. Because in chapter 1, as he came out of the temple, or excuse me, chapter 13, verse 1, he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The glory of the temple. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The disciples' eyes no doubt get very big. Their jaws most likely drop. And then a few of them press in and say, can we talk about that? Because then in verses 3 and 4, several of the disciples approach Jesus and ask two questions. Notice them. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished? These two questions frame up the majority of Jesus' response in the remaining 30 verses. One... When will this temple be destroyed? And two, what are the signs that these things are about to take place? Regardless if we are first century Christians or present day Christians, the aim of Jesus' teaching could be summed up in this. This world is passing, and while judgment is certain the timing of that judgment is unknown, and therefore, watch. This world is passing. Judgment is certain. The timing is uncertain. Therefore, watch. Okay, Jesus, first question, when will this be? When will this take place? I think one of the primary concerns here in Christ's response is that as a perspective what i mean by that is you probably noticed how depending on your vantage points that reality can be deceptive we can take our thumb and block out the sun that can be deceptive a little kid perhaps thinking that the sun is smaller than their thumb but what's really happening your perspective your vantage point causes you to assume something that might not, in fact, be even reasonably close to being true. Our ability to judge distance and size can often be distorted because of our vantage point. And it's because of this problem of perception and perspective that Jesus begins his answer with a warning, be on guard. Do not be led astray. Look back at verse 5. As he, excuse me, verse 5, and Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't directly, right away, address their question. But he draws their attention and their focus seemingly to more pressing concerns. In your anticipation of the destruction of this temple, there are going to be several dangers, several obstacles that I want to point out to you, and I'm telling you, do not be deceived. Because in verse 6, he says, there are those among you who will come in the name of Jesus making false claims. And he says in verse 7, there's dangers on the outside. International conflicts, rumors of national warfare, Natural disasters. And what he says is don't confuse the birth pains with the actual birth. Now, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but many a parent has been fooled by the pain of what they thought was birth but was not. Making a very quick trip to the hospital, assured that this is the moment, here we are, and to be sent back home. And to hear from your doctor, whether you wanted to or not, this actually isn't labor. This is just the pains leading up to labor. Jesus says, don't be deceived. The painful difficulties are not the main event. If you like, it's only the pregame show. And Jesus says, these difficulties should not surprise you. These pains should not surprise you. Don't be led astray by them. As you anticipate the end of the temple and the judgment that's coming, don't be quick to jump to conclusions and beginning to think, this is it. Here we are. This is the end. What he says is these things must take place. But these aren't the signs. The end is not yet. He gives them this warning and he says, don't be led astray. But then he also says in verse 9, be ready for persecution. Don't be led astray, but be ready for persecution. Look back at verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be first proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, But say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So again... Jesus, rather than launching into the specifics as to when, he responds with another exhortation. Be on your guard. You're asking when this is going to happen, and I want to tell you first, be on your guard. And this could literally be understood as, be clear in your own minds. We need to be clear on expectations, is what Jesus is saying. You're asking about the end of the temple, but let's be clear on the road leading up to that actual event. What is that going to look like? Because the next 40 years would be particularly painful, particularly difficult for followers of Jesus. Betrayal, arrest, trial, prison, hatred, death. That's what awaits you. But even in that, what he says to his listeners is that the Holy Spirit will be faithful to supply to you all that you need to be faithful in that moment. And essentially, this is what plays out in the book of Acts. This is what we see over the coming course of the future decades. Acts 14, verse 22, Paul Planting churches, preaching the gospel, then returns to the very places that he was persecuted. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. What Jesus tells his disciples here to expect as normative in the near future becomes the normative pattern for disciples everywhere. It's directed to what's coming upon their doorstep, but it's also reflective of what would be experienced by Christians in many places throughout many ages, even up until this present day. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed." If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So The disciples ask, when will this be? And Jesus responds with, well, let's be clear on a few things. Don't misinterpret your circumstances, but don't be surprised by opposition. There's a sense in what is specific to the followers of Christ leading up to the destruction of the temple, does become emblematic or prescriptive for all Christians in every time. For one, just the concern of being led astray. While this is unique and directed towards what would come in the future decades, it's not unique in the reality for all Christians in all places. The temptation remains... To look around, to read our news headlines, and then can conclude the certainty of the end of all things is here. This is it. This is the end. And again, I believe Christ would say to us, don't be led astray. The end of all things will come. But what he says here is that, friends, don't be fooled. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes. Sound familiar? You could look even in the last recent weeks. You could look in recent decades. You could look in recent centuries. You could look at recent millennia. Don't be led astray. Don't be led astray. These are but the birth pains. But secondly, this warning that he gives is also applicable to us today. Be on your guard. Persecution is normative for the people of God, regardless if it's been normative for us in recent decades. We run the risk of deciding what is normative Christian experience by the bubble that we live in and not the word of God, not the history of the church. While persecution and things like betrayal and death and famine may not be what's in your journal for the last six weeks, it's in the journal, it's in the livelihood of many Christians throughout the world and throughout all time. Our experience as Western Christians is unique. It's an anomaly. It's a bubble in church history. What is normative for God's people is persecution, is betrayal, is death, is famine. We need to be on guard. In Church, there's an enduring temptation for Christians to interpret the world's current events as the certain sign of the end of all things. But in reality, these events have been happening for thousands of years. And rather than developing an obsession with interpreting these events and seeing them as reasons to check out, we must hear Christ's teaching on the remaining to be faithful to remain on guard, and to be weary of being led astray. The end is not yet. First question, when? Second question, what are the signs, Jesus? What are the signs that this is going to happen? So after dealing with these preliminary concerns, Jesus turns his attention now to their second question. He speaks, first of all, to the end of the temple. Look back at verse 24 now. Excuse me, verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter the house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, And false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Jesus, when will these things take place and what are the signs? In verse 14, Jesus warned of hearing things that could lead you to the wrong conclusion. And now he says, when you see, in verse 14, when you see this, make no mistake. The event has arrived. You will know it by this unmistakable sign, which he refers to as the abomination of desolation. In Luke's account of this teaching, he says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that desolation has come near. When you see this, Armies at the gate. Pretty good sign it's near. <laughs> That's what Jesus is saying. This abomination of desolation. It, it is referencing a prophecy that Daniel makes in Daniel 9:27, and most Bible students agree that this prophecy was actually fulfilled in 162 BC when Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian king, desecrates the temple abolishes the daily sacrifice and set up in its place this offering to Zeus. And so Mark says, it's like that, but worse. Let the reader understand. 67 AD, Jerusalem's under siege. Rome seeks to crush this Jewish rebellion. 68 AD, Caesar Nero dies. A succession of emperors succeed him. 69 A.D., Titus Vespasian, commander of the Roman army, is commissioned to end this Jewish rebellion. And in 70 A.D., the walls of Jerusalem are breached. The city is taken. The temple is burned. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then no. Desolation has come near. Jesus has a few things to say about this time. He says, flee and fear. Flee. Don't stay in the city. Flee to the mountains. Someone somewhat reminiscent of God's word to Lot. Judgment is coming. Don't look back. Flee. He also has an emblem of fear because these days are a sort of tribulation unlike you've ever imagined. Disciples ask, when will these things take place? What will be the sign? Jesus says, you won't miss it. You can't miss it. You will know it when you see it. And the coming judgment upon this temple and the city would be horribly gruesome. It would be immensely costly. And yet, our Lord promises that his eye is upon his people and their tribulation. So much so that he controls the duration of this particular trial. And he determines all events within it so that his people are preserved. Meaning, God's people are not promised to be kept from tribulation. But they are promised by God to be kept in all trial and all tribulation. Therefore, we wait upon him, watching in all seasons. He tells them, this is the sign. He speaks to the sign of the end of the temple. But then within this teaching, he also speaks to the sign of the end of the age. Notice what happens here in chapter 13, verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Did you notice a shift in emphasis as you read those words? Notice the shift within two phrases. Verse 24, In those days, And then verse 26, they will see. In those days is not just filler. It's not just random verbiage that Mark includes here. It is actually an Old Testament phrase that is taken up within our Old Testament scriptures quite often, pointing to the future fulfillment of the word of the Lord. When prophecy would be given, when the Lord would say, thus says the Lord, in those days this will happen, that phrase, in those days, is this grammatical clue of saying, what has just been promised will come to pass. A couple of examples, Jeremiah 3.18, in those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel. Joel 3.1, for behold, in those days, at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Zechariah 8.23, thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, and then a promise of what he will do to restore his people. So by saying in those days, Jesus is loading his teaching with the sort of Old Testament language that emphasizes the future fulfillment of God's promises to his people. In those days, after that. But then there's this other phrase that's a helpful shift that we need to see. It's this phrase, They will see. Notice that prior to this, Jesus says in verse 14, you will see. But now he changes emphasis and he anchors this teaching on something that they will see. This is our second clue that Jesus has moved from the immediate destruction of the temple to the future. The judgment of all things. The language of Christ's teaching within this verse, it's filled with Old Testament imagery. And there's a change of focus from what is a localized judgment here in Jerusalem to that of something cosmic that is worldwide, that has to do with the heavens and the stars and the sun, that is something much greater than armies around a particular gate in a particular city. It's the sort of language that is expressed in Isaiah 13. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from within it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for its iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. What Jesus is teaching Lifting from language of Isaiah 13 is this Old Testament background that alerts the reader, that alerts the hearer of this ominous judgment that will align with the coming of the Son of Man. The end of redemptive history. As the prophet Daniel shows in Daniel 7 verse 14, to him the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Meaning that what Jesus is teaching here in verses 24 through 27 is certain but future. Judgment is coming. And again, just as in the judgment upon Jerusalem and the temple, what does God say? that he will keep his people. He will keep the elect. In the end, he will gather his people to himself. And for his people, this day will be a great day of joy and of vindication. The day of the Lord, where the righteous king comes and every ounce of unrighteousness is dealt with. And every ounce of wickedness will be judged. In all that will remain and remain is that which is righteous. And the reason that that is joy for God's people, because God's people know that judgment is a reality, that wickedness must be judged. But Christians rejoice because they know the judgment that their wickedness and their wrongdoing deserves has been judged upon Christ. And so when Christ returns, It's not for judgment for God's people. All that there is, is mercy. All that there is, is the enjoyment of his righteousness. But only for those who've put their trust in this son who deals with the judgment that sin deserves. There is the judgment of the temple. There is the judgment of the end of the age. But in verse 28, Jesus says there is certainty in both. There is certainty in both. Look at verse 28, chapter 13. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. See also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Notice again a shift in emphasis. Verse 29, what does Jesus do? He returns to the immediate. When you see. Notice the construction here. He began, when you see the armies surrounding When they see the sun being darkened, and now he returns to the immediate. When you see the fig tree, meaning this instruction is directed towards those in Christ's day. This talk of fig trees and attempts to decipher this generation, friends, this has been the subject of thousands of blog posts, of essays and now irrelevant books that are collecting dust at your local thrift store. As men have tried to triangulate dates, determine what a generation means, and then put a rangefinder on the return of Christ and say, there it is, we did it, found it. But so much of this is unnecessary, creating all sorts of confusion. And all so much of this is resolved when we keep it in context. Remember, all of this started with disciples asking two questions regarding the destruction of the temple and the symmetry of Jesus' language concerning the immediate current tense. Verse 14, when you see. Verse 29, when you see. Meaning the generation in verse 30 is not the future generation present at Christ's second coming, but the generation in Jesus' day there at his first coming that lived to see the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. This generation will not pass away. You're going to see the signs. And you will see these stones be scattered about. The certainty of the end of the temple is also taken up as this shadow of the looming certainty of the end of the age. How certain is the end of the age? Just as certain as the end of the temple. Christ says, be certain. This generation will not pass away. They will see the end of the temple. Heaven and earth will pass away. But in the midst of this judgment, be certain. My words will not pass away. Verses 30 and 31 are essentially the summary statements that tie together verses 14 through 23 concerning the end of the temple, and verses 24 through 27 concerning the end of the age. The end of both is on the horizon, judgment is coming. That's how you could sum up all of these verses. Final question How then should we live? If judgment is coming, if it is certain but precisely unknown to its timing, how do we live? What does Jesus say? Look back at your Bibles at verse 32. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. He comes suddenly and finds you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Notice the connection here between verses 31 and 32. There's probably a paragraph break in your Bible, but read them together. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and that hour... Heaven and earth passing away. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Meaning, again, the fact of judgment is certain. The precise timing of this day is uncertain. It's a fixed point in the future, but the precise moment of to when it is unveiled is uncertain. It remains hidden. It's a day known to the Father, be sure. And Christ says it's hidden, not only to the angels in heaven, but to the Son in his human nature. Now friends, the humanity of Christ is one of the great wonders of Scripture. For we see in the Scriptures that Christ has two natures, but one person. And we confess with the church fathers and the historic creeds that the properties of these two natures, human and divine, are without confusion, they're without change, they're without division, without separation. And for the son, not knowing the hour in his incarnate state, It's not heresy nor a dissolution of his divine nature. It is the mystery of two natures in one person. And again, the emphasis here is upon the certainty of the event, but the uncertainty of the particular timing. The end of the hour, not known. Stay awake. It's why scripture continues to emphasize this, and it's why, Our own church confession, the Second London Confession, summarizes these very things. Chapter 32, paragraph 3. And Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity. So will he have that day unknown to men, that they may shake off all carnal security and always be watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may ever be prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Mark 13, then, friends, is not so much a roadmap of future events, but an exhortation for soberness in the present age, regardless of whatever age we find ourselves in. And the exhortation to look, to watch out, To beware, to be on guard, to stay awake. Those are the repeated phrases throughout chapter 13. And Jesus emphasizes this in closing through the image of an estate. He puts it in a word picture. He says it's like that of a master who goes away. But the household staff, particularly the doorkeeper, while his master is away, he must do what? He must watch, he must wait certain things must be done even though the master is away the master's departure is not downtime for his servants but it demands alertness awaiting for the return of the master that's the image that christ gives and then do not miss then within all of this the repetition verse 33 be on guard keep awake verse 35 stay awake verse 37 Stay awake. <laughs> Whether we're anticipating the destruction of the temple or the end of the age, the disciples' posture is that of alertness and watching. That is the unmistakable application of chapter 13. And it is essential that we see this repeated exhortation towards watching and towards being ready is not just here in Mark 13, but it's in all of Scripture. Scripture. And friends, if it's repeated throughout all of Scripture, would that not warn us to the present reality of the danger of failing to stay awake? How often are we warned against the dangers of dullness and just laxity in our faith? The need for soberness and constant watchfulness. Think of Romans 13, 11. Besides, you know this. You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. When is the end of the age? I don't know. But we're one day closer than we were yesterday. So let's be awake. Let's be alert. Elsewhere, Paul is fond of speaking of Jesus' appearing at the end of the age, a word he likes to use. And for God's people the appearing of Christ will bring salvation. It will bring rescue from destruction, relief from suffering, relief from persecution. For God's enemies, though, it means punishment. It means most certain judgment with everlasting destruction and separation from the Lord and all of His goodness and majesty. if that's true, it's no surprise then that the book of Revelation ends... With a longing for Jesus' return, a longing for those because it promises that they will overcome. They will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And they find deliverance from their enemies, from temptation, from this present evil age. So the question that's put before us is quite simple, isn't it? Are you watching? Are you alert? Are you staying awake? I think the concerns of drowsiness and failing to stay awake, that whole image, it's filled with helpful instruction, isn't it? Perhaps some of you are fighting drowsiness right now. (laughs) What happens to us when we're overcome with drowsiness? It's a wonderful image, isn't it? Well, our reaction time is slowed down. The things we see and our ability to react, not so good. We become oblivious even to our surroundings. The dangers that are around us, because of drowsiness, they're minimized, or maybe not even seen, to our own hurt, to our own damage. And the drowsy Christian is in no less danger. because when we fail to lot, watch, we lose our bearings. We lose the sense of sobriety to the dangers that are around us. Our reaction time slows down, and our inability to respond in a way that honors the Lord diminishes. We not off to our own hurt. And so church, hear the exhortation from God's word. Stay awake, be alert, be on guard to the subtlety of the dangers of spiritual lethargic living. Are you watching over your own soul in such a way that you are mindful of any evil that could come upon it to wound or injure or numb you? To numb your heart? To weaken your faith? To dull your senses into such a way that you are shrugging your shoulders at the reality of the danger that is around you and the imminence of his return? Are there things that used to prick your conscience that now you've made concessions with? Have you become lazy neglecting the spiritual habits that nourish your soul? Maybe it's not laziness for you. Maybe it's preoccupation with other things. Have you become so preoccupied with other things, neglecting the habits that feed and nourish your soul. And the warning of Scripture is to stay alert, to wake up. Beware of spiritual laziness, drowsiness. Take heed to the warning of Scripture and respond in repentance and faith. Lord, awaken me to the dangers and the pitfalls and help me. Help me to keep my heart with all diligence. That's the right response if you know that you have become one who's failed to watch. Repentance and faith sounds like the acknowledgement of the reality of that sin and the great need for help in that. Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me. Now, when we survey a chapter like this, we have to recognize that Scripture often has a near and a future emphasis when it comes to matters of warnings and exhortation. Because for Jesus' immediate hearers, Imagining a world without the temple is unthinkable. That's why they ask him the questions they do. Jesus, have you seen these buildings? Yeah. Not one stone is going to be left upon another. What? That is unthinkable. Massive stones, some of them 42 feet long, 11 feet high, 14 feet deep, strewn about like children's building blocks. Yeah. Count on it. My word will not fail. The brilliant architecture, the massive columns, the visual collage of gold and silver, crimson and purple, reflecting in the morning sun, now just dust? Yeah. Count on it. My word will not fail. It's hard to imagine something apparently so permanent as the temple being no more. But it was no more. And friends, we need to hear this. Much of what we assume as permanent is actually passing. And what you may dismiss as passing is actually permanent. The warning remains. And so I wonder what in your life looks to you as something that is so permanent that you would be astounded to think, I'll always have this. You couldn't imagine a day without this And what to you seems so passing, so fleeting that it doesn't deserve your attention. Friends, our Lord Jesus has a way of being so gracious and so faithful and so merciful to awaken us to the reality of the things that we assume are permanent are quite fleeting. And the things that we may dismiss as passing are quite enduring. And it is mercy for you to see the things that you've begun to hope in that would always be there as fleeting. Your health, the security of your job, Your relationships, whatever confidence you have in future plans, passing away. It's fleeting. But his word will remain. His word will never fail. So Jesus has a way of showing this to us that he and he alone is unchanging. That he and he alone is permanent. And because he is unchanging, his word is faithful and worthy to be trusted in. For all of its beauty, for all of its grandeur, for all of its goodness, this world will not continue as it is. Judgment is coming. How then should we live? Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's how we wait. That's Titus chapter 2, verse 12. It's a good one to be familiar with. Judgment is certain. The spirit and the bride say come. The one who has ears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires the water of life without price come. And this is the way our Bibles conclude. He who testifies these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We watch and we wait. And we find ourselves anticipating his appearing for the very reason that he has come already. He's come already to deal with sin, to put an end to sin. And when he comes again for God's people, it will be a great day of joicing where we say, amen. And so we watch and we wait. Our God and Father, we look to you this morning. We thank you for the clear teaching of your word and the great need that we have to have our lives ordered and formed by it. We ask and we pray that you would help us in our weakness, that you would help us in the temptation that we have to become weary, to become distracted, to become lazy, to fail, to watch. Lord, we see it within our lives. And so where, Lord, you are showing us these things and where that you are pointing it out, Lord, grant repentance, grant faith, and grant the great hope that is found in the goodness of your Son. Lord, we rest assured that your word will not fail. And where you have warned us this morning, where you have made great promises to us this morning, help us to be found anchoring ourselves to the goodness of your word, to the unchanging nature of yourself and to the promises that you make to your people. Help us in the midst of affliction, persecution, even death itself. Lord, help us and strengthen our faith that we might find great comfort in knowing that so much of what we put our hands to is fleeting, it's passing. But the thing that we hear with our ears that you've revealed to us in your word will not end, that it will not falter, that you most certainly will be faithful to your promises. So build up your church and strengthen us that our confidence would not be in ourselves or the very things that we can build with our hands, but Lord, the things which are unseen, you whose builder and maker is God, the city that we await, that we long for. Lord, fix our hearts there. Fix our desires and realign our affections that they might reflect all that you love and all that you hate. For the glory of Christ's name we pray, amen.